We've got some kind of backing track. Oh, that's fine. That's great. I was just quietly stewing, thinking it was somebody's mobile phone. But uh, the Lord bless them. It's, it's lovely. That's great. Thank you. <clears throat> I can't now remember if my mobile phone's on airplane mode or not. So it would serve me right if it goes off halfway through the sermon. But never mind. Here we all are. Good morning again, everybody. And uh, thank you, Hannah, for that excellent reading. We're, we're making our way through a conversation. It's a long conversation. It's the, one of the longest conversations recorded in the Bible. A conversation that Jesus had with his disciples the night before he was crucified. And as we go deeper and deeper into this conversation, we're going to encounter some things that we may not have been expecting. We're going to encounter some, some quite complex things. And one of them is that Jesus seems to go around and around in circles. And that's because he does. Whether this is a rabbinic method of teaching, I don't know. However, the trajectory of his thought is spiral-shaped rather than linear. Uh, we find ourselves keep on coming back to this subject again and again. And, um, for example, we keep on coming back to the subject of the Holy Spirit, and uh, who's referred to frequently in this conversation as the advocate or the spirit of truth. Uh, and each time we hear about the spirit, uh, we hear things that are familiar, that have been said before, and we hear things that are new uh, uh, and that we add to our understanding. We are probably more accustomed uh, in our uh, schools and universities and so on and so forth, we're more accustomed to more linear forms of teaching. We might have been expecting Jesus to say, here's everything you need to know about the Holy Spirit in bullet points. But rather we are learning in a spiral. And that's a really good thing to do. Another feature of this conversation is that it is necessarily operating at two levels at once. Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night before he was crucified. John is speaking to us, Jesus' disciples, here and now. So Jesus, in a sense, is speaking both to his disciples then and there, as well as to us here and now. So then, for example, in chapter 15, verse 27, uh, Jesus says, you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And this cannot apply to us in any straightforward sense, because we haven't been walking with Jesus from the beginning, uh, not from the days of John the Baptist and Christ's baptism in the Jordan. But in other ways, Jesus is actually speaking more to us than to them, insofar as he speaks spiritual truths spiritually. It was difficult for them on that night. In fact, one might say it was impossible for them on that night to fully comprehend what the Lord was saying to them because they hadn't yet been filled in power with the Holy Spirit. They were believers in Jesus, to be sure, Followers of Jesus, yes, that's right. But they had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
And that would happen from their perspective 50 days later. And that would happen from our perspective in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus says to them, uh, 16.12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So then, indeed, Jesus speaks to us, spirit-filled Christians, and we can understand what Jesus is saying better than they could. In a sense, Jesus is speaking spiritual things to us first, to them second. And in our text today, broadly speaking, Jesus cycles through three topics, broadly speaking. He speaks about our ministry in the world, our ministry of representing Jesus to a hostile world. Secondly, he speaks about the Spirit's ministry in the world, his ministry of representing Jesus to a hostile world. And thirdly, he speaks about the Spirit's ministry in us, our ministry of representing Jesus, um, uh, in uh, the Spirit working uh, for us and in us and through us. So then with respect to the first of those three topics, um, uh, the topic of our ministry in the world, our ministry of representing Jesus, it's introduced with these words, 15 to 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Jesus then goes on to teach that the world will hate the disciples because they do not belong to the world, rather they belong to him. They belong to Jesus, for Jesus has chosen them. He, they did not choose him, rather Jesus chose them out of the world. So they're not in the world, they're out of the world. And as they, the world, persecuted Jesus, so the world will persecute us, for the world hated Jesus because it hates God. And this hatred of God is, uh, verse 25, without reason. And on face value, uh, these statements can seem rather bleak, uh, unreasonably bleak, possibly even paranoid. Uh, maybe, perhaps, smacking of bitterness. Uh, so, actually, the, to, to understand what Jesus is talking, actually, probably the key words to understand is the word world. Uh, what, what is he referring to when he uses the word world? And that's an excellent question, because the people who study these kinds of things say that the word world is used in at least nine different ways in the New Testament. Um, I haven't looked at that myself, uh, but it is fairly obvious, and I'll now show you how. The Greek word, which is translated always uh, in our English Bibles as world, is the word cosmos, and it is used occasionally in the cosmological sense. I'm not sure if that's a pun, but if it is, I intended it. 
since the creation of the world, is using the word world cosmologically. In other words, since the creation was, the whole universe, since the creation was created. That's a cosmic meaning. Sometimes the word stands in for what we might call planet Earth. The sphere of human existence and activity, such as, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Uh, that's an um, anthropological or possibly geographical meaning of the word world. We, God so loved us, in other words. And sometimes the word world stands, though, also uh, in a very different sense. It stands for uh, um, humanity in its organized hostility and rejection of God, as in, same author, different book, different use of the word world. John writes in 1 John chapter 2.15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Um, thanks, Evan. That might bang around a bit, so um, uh, crew arm doors and cross-check. Bless you. Thank you. That's lovely. Um, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So in one sense, we are to love the world, and in another completely different sense, we are most definitely not to love the world. The word world in this third sense is that organized cultured, humankind-focused and centered sphere that has rejected God. That rejection of God is sometimes ignoring him passively, at other times it's ridiculing him and his people, at other times it is vehement and violent hatred of him. But it is fundamentally about the need to dethrone God, to murder him, in order that we might receive the glory and honor for our own achievements, that we might be glorified and that we might honor ourselves. It is in this sense that Jesus can refer to Satan as the prince of this world, not meaning that Satan reigns on planet Earth, but rather this state of human affairs, the way that God is ignored, it, excluded, sidelined, explained away, blasphemed and disobeyed, this state of affairs is, is not spiritually neutral. It is satanic. It is a satanically fueled rebellion. So then, the world's hatred of God is not rational, but that does not make it irrational. No, it is not rational because it is spiritual. So then non-Christians, to one degree or another, will always find Christians repulsive, as well as the Bible, the church, uh, worship songs about Jesus, Jesus being brought up in conversation at the pub, 
and that will always be repulsive to them, not because somehow we are better, more moral, or more ethical, but rather because the spirits within them are angered, embarrassed, and repulsed by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, the followers of Jesus. It is also important that we understand the world, as it's being discussed here now, as a spiritual phenomenon, so that we understand fully uh, 16.2. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. So that when that time, I have told you this, so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Uh, what does the word synagogue mean? Uh, well, uh, to begin with, we might say, well, it's the Jewish word for church. And if we said that, we'd be exactly right. It's the place of worship. It's the place where uh, uh, songs are sung, prayers are said, God is worshipped, the Bible is read and explained. Um, it is also community focus and community identity. Um, it is where um, cultural identity markers are affirmed and expounded. Um, this text was fulfilled in their lifetime. Um, and, and we know that. We're all within their lifetime. As we read the rest of the New Testament, we'll see the split of the international Jewish synagogue movement into Jesus rejecting synagogues preaching Judaism and Jesus worshipping synagogues preaching the gospel, the latter now called churches. And we'll see Christians, whether from Jewish or from Gentile background, we'll see them ejected by force sometimes, and occasionally killed from Jewish synagogues, like the witness Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And we'll see multiple references to Jewish persecution of Christians in Acts and other New Testament writings, and in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus refers to the uh, Jewish synagogue of Philadelphia, which had begun an organized persecution of Christians in that city. Jesus refers to it as the synagogue of Satan, Revelation 3, 9. It is important to understand, though, of course, that this text is functioning at two levels. Uh, it, it's not simply that it's fulfilled, done and dusted. Uh, rather, there are things that we can learn for us today. It speaks to us. And we won't understand it unless we realize that Jesus is talking in spiritual rather than in spatial or geographical terms. Otherwise, if we made that mistake, we might think that once we crossed that threshold, we have transferred ourselves from the world into the church. Or even worse, um, that we are now safe. We might understand that we, in transferring ourselves out of the world into the church, we are preparing ourselves in here for life out there in the world. And that's not completely mistaken, but it can be dangerous because it is um, conceivable and indeed observable uh, that uh, the church can be a place of such worldliness that it embarrasses the world. Um, the church is not spiritually neutral ground. It is highly contested 
spiritually ground. In the human sphere, it is contested politically. In the spiritual sphere, it is contested who will reign, who will control what happens there. Um, <clears throat> during my time here, uh, I've, I've had um, a number of conversations uh, with people um, who have been hurt uh, or disappointed with uh, their experience of uh, this church. And sometimes certain phraseology repetitively reappears, um, such as, I have such a hard time out there in the world that I want to feel safe at church. Or, I expected the church to be a sanctuary, a safe place, a place of protection from the world. Jesus is teaching his disciples that following him will necessarily include experiences of rejection and exclusion and persecution, possibly even unto death, even indeed in the synagogue, even indeed from the church. And it's essential that we understand that in those terms, that it can happen in church as well as in the world. Uh, yes, uh, to be sure, Jesus is speaking of the Jewish persecution of Christians. After that will come the Roman persecution of Christians, communist persecution of Christians, secular Christ persecution of Christians, Islamic, Buddhist, Hindu, and animist persecution of Christians, and any number of other persecution of Christians. And yes, Jesus is referring to that here. But of course, actually, history tells us that when that happens, when we're persecuted from outside, it grows and strengthens our faith. And the church flourishes both in holiness and maturity as well as in number. Vast numbers of people come to faith in Jesus Christ when that happens. What we've got to understand that this text is also talking about that the fact that the church is no refuge from persecution for following Jesus, no refuge for the spirit filled Christian. This is what Jesus is preparing us for, and it's important because, it's important because um, I've seen so many examples of this, and so have most, most uh, Christians when you've been around for a while, and pastors. A lot of Christians lose their faith, not when they're gently ribbed for being a God-botherer in the staff room, or when they experience rudeness at a party for their views on human sexuality, but rather they lose their faith when they experience hostility, exclusion, slander, rejection, rudeness from fellow Christians in the church. You are not safe. That is what Jesus is talking about. We are not safe. Uh, we are at church, and churches are contested ground. They are dangerous places where people get hurt. Uh, in spiritual terms, they are hardly ever entirely free, and sometimes they are full of worldly devices and beliefs, with the spirit of this world operating and manifesting through factions and dissensions, at very least. We are not safe. Jesus didn't call us to follow him in order that we would be safe. And he didn't call you into this church in order to make you safe. 
Uh, I, I guess, actually, I, I, I learned this lesson. Uh, I was uh, blessed and protected in this lesson, but I learned it uh, two years into my walk with Christ. Um, in 1994, I was in this church when uh, um, mid-sermon, uh, the church erupted and there was a lot of shouting. 80% uh, of the congregation immediately walked out. There was a lot of hurt. There was a lot of tears. Uh, that was the last day, the, the guy behind the pulpit, that was the last day he served as pastor in this church. Uh, and it was enormously painful. Uh, and some people never went back to church. Uh, enormously painful. So I, I, I have learned that it, it is not lightly uh, that we choose to follow Jesus. It is not lightly uh, that we commit to belonging to a church. It is not lightly that we might walk into something such as uh, ordination. It is not lightly uh, that we serve in Christian ministry up front or behind the scenes. Churches are dangerous places where people get hurt. And we have now been warned, warned by Jesus. It's part of the walk. I might have a drink of water. Thank you. Seamlessly, Jesus moves on to explain about the ministry of the Spirit in the world. The Holy Spirit will continue Jesus' ministry in Jesus' physical absence. It is the pleasure of the Holy Spirit to make Jesus known, to reveal him as God's Son, to bring his teaching afresh to each new generation, and to testify concerning him. Uh, notice how, in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 15, the testimony of Jesus to the world is simultaneously the utterance of the Spirit as well as the utterance of Christ's disciples. The Spirit's speaking, but the Spirit's speaking through human beings to the world about Jesus. Jesus explains to his disciples that it is for their good that he is going away in order that they might receive the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth, in his fullness. It would have been an utter mystery to the disciples there on that night. Totally confounding. How can you follow Jesus if he's gone, if he's not here, if you can't talk to him, if you can't see what he's doing? It, this thought can indeed be difficult for us too. Us who rightly delight in the prospect and thought of Jesus' return, the return of Jesus' physical being to us, we delight in that thought. But Jesus is teaching his disciples, them and us, that it is better to have the Spirit in Jesus' absence than to have Jesus present without the Spirit. We are more blessed. We, it's actually, we're the ones who have unfettered access to Christ. We have more immediacy and intimacy with Jesus than they enjoyed back then. Because we have the Spirit. And because we have the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. Uh, you might, might remember um, 
Uh, I didn't become aware of them till the early 90s. I'm not sure when they appeared, but if you remember back to the early 90s, the WWJD paraphernalia became fashionable for young Christians at a time when I was a young Christian. WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? Good insofar as they're a visual testimony to Christian faith. Good insofar as they may have prompted young Christians to pray. That's an excellent idea. But the question, what would Jesus do, is ultimately sub-Christian. It poses the question as an intellectual exercise and as a hypothetical. What would Jesus have done if he was faced with this situation? Well, actually he is and he's there. Jesus is absent physically, but he is present in the spirit and we have the mind of Christ. Rather, we can and should pray, Father, show me all that you're doing. Please help me to join in with what it is that you're doing. What are you doing, Lord? Show me. Help me to see what you want me to see. Help me to say what you want me to say. Help me to hear what you want me to hear. And if I say or do, how do you want me to say and do it? Christ's teaching about the ministry of the Spirit in the world is, um, uh, is, is all about his presence, in his absence, and it comes to a conclusion this time around with these verses. When he, that is the Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can no longer see me. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Uh, These uh, verses are um, enigmatic, and they're not entirely straightforward in their interpretation. Uh, Rather than detailing all of the different ways in which we might understand them, I, I think generally... Generally, uh, they're best understood as saying that the Spirit will continue to do the works that we see Jesus doing in the Gospels. Jesus is the witness with respect to, for example, the nature of sin. What is the nature of sin? It is un-Jesus-likeness. When Christ's disciples live like Jesus... The Holy Spirit will convict others with respect to spiritual and eternal truths in the same way that the disciples themselves experienced when they met Jesus physically. The Spirit will continue the work of Jesus in the world in his absence. And so Jesus turns to the topic of the Spirit's ministry in us his ministry of representing Jesus to us, in us, uh, and, and, and through us. Verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. 
That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Uh, Nowadays, I guess to continue the the thought about how we learn in different situations, nowadays people uh, love the phrase uh, lifelong learning. And representatives of every profession are keen to emphasize that belonging to their profession involves lifelong learning. And I'm sure that that's true. The vast majority of us indeed have to commit to some form of reading, studying, testing, professional development if we are simply to keep in step with the rest of our peers when it comes to the workplace. We have to work hard just to stay where we are. And without lifelong learning, we would rapidly go backwards. Again, we can bring this assumption to church and to our Bible reading that it's about lifelong learning. And it is. But if being a Christian was a matter of facts and answers, you could commit yourself to a course of study, sit an exam, graduate, and that would be that. There'd be grades of achievement, like in music. You could say things like, oh, I've recently passed my eighth grade in holiness. (laughs) Congratulations. But with respect to being discipled, we don't come here to learn answers, but rather to meet with Jesus in the power of the Spirit. There is always something more to learn. Yes, it is lifelong learning, and there's always something more to learn because the Spirit is constantly at work in our lives. So we come into Christ's courts with praise and worship and thanksgiving, expectant of hearing from him through each other and the word. He always has more to share with us, and he always will, for he takes from Jesus and makes it known to us. And everything that belongs to the Father belongs to Jesus. So then, when Paul writes to the churches, the gathered Christians in the New Testament, with respect to their gatherings, with respect to them coming together, he constantly exhorts them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Speak and teach in the Spirit. Desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Do the ministry of the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Keep the unity of the Spirit. Take up the sword of the Spirit and worship in the Spirit, standing firm in the Spirit, in one Spirit. Uh, my, my prayer then in teaching the, the Bible week in and week out is that God might speak prophetically through me as we study the word together, that God might speak through me by the Spirit, pointing people always to Jesus, for it is the Spirit of prophecy who bears witness to Jesus. Otherwise, once we'd looked at this passage or that passage, we could tick a box and say, Done! There is always more to learn, always more the Spirit wants to reveal in order that we might continue to grow and grow in his likeness. Maturity and maturation rather than lifelong learning. But they're similar ideas. 
And for this reason, as I pray and as I preach, I know exactly what I have said, but I have no idea what you've heard. And sometimes people hear the Spirit speaking through a preacher in a way that no preacher could ever anticipate or expect. I guess like the time a young man said to me, um, having heard me preach on the rich young ruler from Mark chapter 10, he said, in response to your sermon this morning, I'm going to join the fire brigade. And that was really interesting because I, I didn't mention fire brigades. It doesn't come up in the passage. I hadn't even come anywhere close to mentioning fire brigades. But the Spirit, through the text preached, had given him the courage to say no to his family's expectation that he would take over the family farm and to answer the call of the Spirit on his life, what he believed Jesus wanted him to do, which was to join the Melbourne Fire Brigade. Tangentially, uh, if, with your indulgence, the Lord recently gave me a picture of a bat and a moth. Um, one of those diagrams of a bat with, with um, sound waves coming out of his mouth and hitting a moth and bouncing back. Echolocation. Hopefully you're roughly familiar with how that works. Um, uh, and the Lord gave me that picture in my head. And um, this was because I was w wondering aloud in God's presence about the fact that um, uh, um, people hear all kinds of things uh, when they listen to me preach. Um, often remarkably different to what I think I have said. Um, for better or for worse. And this is an extraordinary phenomenon. And I'm amazed by what people sometimes claim to have heard me said. Uh, and his answer was to show me the moth and the bat. And, um, of course, when a bat squeaks, it, echolocation, it squeaks, the, the squeak bounces off the moth, comes back to the bat with his ears, and all he hears is an echo of his own voice. He's hearing himself, but he's hearing that bounced off a moth, and it tells him, as he listens to his own voice, it tells him a lot about that moth. And that's what God was saying to me. When my voice comes bouncing back to me, true, better, or distorted, in that echo, I will find a source of information about them. Listen to them. Uh, listen to what the Spirit is now saying to me as my voice is bounced off God's people. Well, us in the world, the Spirit in us, and the Spirit in the world. Uh, we'll return to these topics again, actually in two weeks' time, as uh, Mike takes us through the rest of uh, uh, chapter 16. But um, what the Spirit has spoken to you this morning, keep. The rest, discard. And the Lord be with you all.